Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 11 as we're kind of walking through, uh, walking through the book of Romans. Um, and once again, we come to chapter 11, we come to a piece of the book that I really did, do not and did not want to preach. And why do I not want to preach this passage of Scripture? This is what expository preaching sometimes leads you to pieces of Scripture that you'd rather not deal with, right? Uh, this is one of them. And why is that? Because it's so stinking hard, all right? It's difficult. It's, it's full of stuff in there that you're like, makes you step back and scratch your head and go, okay, God, what are you honestly uh, saying here, right? Matter of fact, most scholars and in commentaries that I looked at as I was preparing this message and looking at, they kind of treat chapters 9 through 11 like a parenthetical statement. And that means like it's just kind of like sitting there in the middle of chapter 8 and chapter 12 making people go, why did you chase off on this rabbit trail, Paul? That's how you know Paul was a Baptist preacher, right? Because he chased this rabbit trail for three chapters and is, is causing us a lot of heartburn as we walk through this. Because really, if you take chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, and the subject matter, and then you just go right on over to chapter 12, it's almost like it's just seamless. It fits together. And you're like, why did you wedge chapters 9 through 11 in here just to, just to mess us up or just to, you know, just to mess with us? No. All of Scripture is important, and we need to preach the full counsel of God. If it's there, God wants it there, and we need to grab understanding from it, and we need to be changed by it as well. But some passages, they just require a little bit more sweat equity when you're studying them, and when you're looking at them, and when you're reading them. Some of them, they read, and it's smooth like butter, man. You just read it, and you get it, and God speaks to you, and then other passages you read, and you're like... Man, I, I don't know why that's there, but I trust that God has it there for a reason, and I hope somebody got something from that today because I don't know if I necessarily did. That's going to happen as we study Scripture sometimes. And I want to be fully transparent with you, okay? With all the things that was going on this week, you know, with the, the SBC report coming out on Sunday, and I've read the majority of it, and I've had to read it in chunks because it is not a bite that you want to take all at once because it is heartbreaking, and um, it's, it's, it's saddening. And um, with that, and then, and then coming up with, with the release of that report, and it outlines this horrific enabling of predators and ministry and covering up, and a lot of times people just looking at the brand more than looking at the person and looking at the suffering and all of those types of things. And you see so many accounts of people who trusted the institution of the church that's supposed to seek justice and love mercy and only to find out that they were neglected or intimidated by many people to just stay quiet. It, 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 it's hard. And then with what we saw take place in Texas this week with another tragic school shooting, this time at an elementary school. I mean, these kids that lost their lives are younger than both of my kids, you know? And I'm thinking, it's, it's horrible. And, and they had just had their end of the year award ceremony and they were sticking around to have a fun day at school. You know, we don't have a lot of fun days at school, but these kids were supposed to have a fun day. And it turned into a day of tragedy. And then you hear the reverberations that are coming out of there as well. I mean, some of those stories about the sheriff who was off duty and just happened to go bust out a window to start pulling kids out, pulls out a little girl with blood on her and says, honey, are you bleeding? She says, no, that's my best friend. She got shot. And said the name of the little girl and it happened to be the daughter of the sheriff that was there pulling him out. 
That's how, she, that's how he found out that his child had perished. And the story of one of the teachers whose husband went to a memorial set up and the grief and the sorrow was just too much and he suffered a heart attack and passed away. And in a matter of just three days, four of their, their four children were orphaned, lost both mom and dad. You see, evil doesn't just exist for a moment, it, re it reverberates. But do you know what else reverberates as well? The love of God, the grace of God as well. But I'll be honest with you, this week has been heavy, and it was hard for me to focus this week. I mean, I got done with this sermon a lot later than I normally do. I like to be done by Thursday so I can just kind of let it marinate in my heart, and I didn't get done until yesterday. Uh, well, actually, the early hours of yesterday morning with this because I just had trouble focusing, and I'll be honest too. It's weeks like this. It's when we see things like this happen, and we've seen things like this through history. This isn't the first time that tragedy has hit. We've seen 9-11. We've seen D-Day. We've seen so many different things just in our nation's history, but then you couple it with all the tragic things that have happened throughout the world, throughout history. Tragedy exists. Evil exists, and it makes you wonder sometimes. You got to sit back, and even the most seasoned believer is sometimes tempted to say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? It can make many ask, are you still there? It can make some people say, can we still preach a gospel that says that God is good and that God is faithful when we see so much evil in the world and so much hurting and so much pain and so much suffering? And like I said, history has given us countless moments where we're forced to stop and we're forced to scratch our heads and wonder what God is doing. And when it seems like we're surrounded by so much darkness, you wonder that if it's so dark that it has snuffed out the light. You wonder if God's just maybe given up. Like maybe, maybe God's just done. Maybe this is just God's judgment on us and he's turned his back and all of these things. And then we open the book to chapter 11 of our text. And as I began to sit down and I began to work on putting this message together to a difficult, often avoided passage that many people think is parenthetical at best and just kind of sits on its own island. I see these words in verse number one. I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people? And what's his answer? Absolutely not. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. That one line right there, that, that one line as I sat down to prepare this week was like a jolt of just like truth and life-giving life -giving power and peace and encouragement all at the same time. And from there, it just keeps getting better in chapter 11. Now, don't get me wrong. Chapter 11 is still very, very confusing. All right. It's full of like, it's, it's still talking about Israel and God's plans with Israel, which we still don't completely understand. And then he starts talking in agricultural terms, which is a city boy I don't get. He starts talking about olive branches and wild olive branches and natural olive branches and grafting them in and, and pruning them away. And I'm like, oh my goodness, there's a lot of things that we have to unpack here. But the overall message that we get from chapter 11, and I think what we've gotten from chapters 9 through 11 is this, is that God is always faithful and God never abandons his own. This is the overall passage, and it's, if we could simplify all three chapters here into one statement, God is always faithful, God always keeps his promises, and God never abandons his own. He doesn't give up on redemption, and he doesn't give up on his work of restoration. Even when we don't see it, he's always working. 
And while the temptation is to get through this chapter as fast as possible, we're actually going to look at this chapter, chapter 11, for three weeks. We're going to break it down into three different messages, Lord willing. So this morning, I want to look at verses 1 through 16 and see how God proves his faithfulness even when we can't see it. So if you'll listen fast, I'll preach fast this morning. Let's look at verse number one. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, Paul says. For I too am an Israelite and a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, God, and they're trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to Elijah? God said, I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant that is chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Again, God reminds us salvation isn't about us. If it is not for the grace of God, we all go the path of the wicked. Verse number seven, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. And the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continuously. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall or to fall away? Absolutely not. Another emphatic no. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come now to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failures riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if I might somehow make my own people jealous with the gospel and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the roots are holy, so are the branches. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you be magnified and glorified. God, I pray that you be worshipped. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate us to truth. Hide me behind the cross that I would say nothing that would hinder your word today. Speak to us now. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. This morning... We're looking at and trying to answer this question that many people have and many people have had through the ages. Is God truly faithful? Have you ever had a moment where you just wonder sometimes, is this really real? Is this thing, this, this faith, that, uh, the faith that I've put in God, is he really real? We see tragedies happen or we hear that report from the doctor of our loved one getting cancer or we don't have enough money at the end of the month and all those things and we wonder, God, are your promises still true? You've made all these promises, but I don't see you coming through on them. I don't see what you're doing. Have you ever had those moments where you wonder, did I make the wrong call on this faith thing? And if you haven't been there, I would just venture to say you probably haven't been tested a whole lot. Or you haven't been looking, you haven't really been thinking about it because each one of us go through those tests because faith is the substance of things that we hope for. It's the evidence of things that we cannot see. There are going to be moments in our lives and in everyone's life when we walk with the Lord where we wonder if he's truly faithful because that's what faith is. Faith is trusting God in the dark. Faith is trusting that he is there even when we may not sometimes see him. And that he doesn't abandon us even in those moments. 
So Paul in our text has been dealing with the question of whether or not God has changed his mind or reneged on the promises that he made to Israel, right? Because Israel is God's chosen people. We've seen that in chapter nine. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Israel is God's chosen nation, his holy people, that he made a covenant with Father Abraham who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Do you remember that song? Everybody stand up and let's all praise the Lord, right? With right arms and left arms and all that, right? He makes this covenant with Abraham that he says, I am going to bless you and I'm going to raise up a mighty nation from you. And that nation will be called Israel. And through that nation, the entire world will be blessed. God, of course, was speaking of the fact that the Messiah that would save the world from their sins would come through the line of Israel. And then we get Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Jewish man, an Israelite himself, who is the son of God at the same time. That is how God intended to bless the entire world through Israel's line. But Israel missed it, right? Israel, when Jesus came, they rejected him. They crucified him. They traded him in for a serial killer. And they crucified him. Rome crucified him because they saw him as a threat to their Pax Romana, their Roman peace, which was really just peaceful for the Romans, but it was domination to everybody else. They cast Jesus aside. Paul had cast Jesus aside too. He was a zealot who was going after trying to hunt down Christians and preachers and house churches and trying to bring them to justice because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. God makes this covenant with Israel. And we see God keeping his promise all the way through Israel's history, right? We see through periods of slavery, God used that moment, that slavery in Egypt and defeated Egypt and brought Israel out of that. He showed, I am faithful. He showed him faithful because he set them up in the promised land and he dealt with all the armies and the tribes and the Israelites and the Jebusites, not not the Israelites, but the, the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the termites and all of those people. Right, you'll catch the termite thing later on at lunch, all right? All the ites that are out there, he, they conquered all of them and God gave them, his, they, God gave them the land. And to all of those people that were conquered, they saw the mightiness of God. And then God brought them back to their homeland even after Babylon and Persia had taken them into captivity and used Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and eventually Jerusalem was restored. God showed himself throughout Israel's history, even through ups and through downs, that God is always faithful. All of this up and down relationship with God was preparing them to one day receive Jesus as the Messiah. But when Jesus came, what did they do? The catalyst through which the, the whole covenant would be fulfilled, the world would be blessed throughout Israel, through Israel because Jesus would come as the Savior, as the Messiah from the nation of Israel. What did they do? The very soil that the spring of salvation ro- rose up out of, they rejected him. And they tried to choke him out. The overwhelming majority of Jerusalem refused to believe in Jesus. And even today, Judaism denies that Jesus is the Messiah. And that they are still waiting for the Messiah to come. Paul's agonizing over this fact. That even though God's chosen people who have so faithfully tried to serve God and to follow his law and have looked at the law to be their salvation, they've missed the point and they've, therefore they've missed salvation And while we as Gentiles 2,000 years later have to understand that we're not Israel, the text does apply to us. So so this passage of scripture, Paul is kind of like having this imaginary argument with a Jewish skeptic in his mind. All right, does anybody else do this? Because this is why I love Paul, because I do this. When I'm wanting to present a case, I think it's the internal lawyer in me. 
I'll sit there, and before I go and have an argument with Stacy, I got to be prepared, all right, because Chick can fight, all right? She is good at this. So, like, I'll go, and I'll, like, you know, go mow the yard or something if I'm upset, and I'm, like, having this imaginary fight in my mind. Like, if I say this, she'll say this, and then I'll come back with this, and then I'll hit a roundhouse. With, she's going to come back with this, and I'm going to come a roundhouse with that. That's kind of what Paul is doing. Anybody else do that, or am I just insane? I might be the one who's insane. <laughs> We have one person who says, no doubt, you are insane, and that is my beautiful wife. All right, all right, so, but Paul is doing that. He's having this, this, this logical argument with, with a legalist in his mind, saying, look, Jesus is the Messiah. You miss the Messiah, but here's the beautiful truth. God's not giving up on you. The one chance you had to be saved God's not giving up on you, and he's patient, and he's waiting, and one day, he's going to draw you back to him. That's the plan, and that's the plan for Israel, is that God's not done with Israel. It's been centuries, millennia of rejection, but God's not done with them, and that's how we see that God is faithful. So is God faithful? Yes, Paul says that much. So let's look at, I want to look at two points this morning. We want to look at the proof of his faithfulness. Paul lays out the proof of his faithfulness. And then he lays out the persistence of his faithfulness. And we may not get through all of this, but I'm going to do my best to preach it as fast as possible. Y'all got to just start listening faster, okay? We see three proofs of God's faithfulness. Paul throws himself out there as the first evidence of faithfulness. He says, has God given up on his people? Has God given up on Israel? And he says, he doesn't just say no. He says, absolutely not. He's like, to put it in good old Kentucky language, he says, heck no, he hasn't given up. And Paul says, evidence number one that I submit to the court is myself. Paul said, I'm an Israelite. Look what he says in verse number one. He says, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the, the tribe of Benjamin, and I know Christ. I have trusted Jesus Christ, and I am safe. Paul has not given up on Israel. Not everyone in Israel has turned their back, and Paul was like great evidence of that because, like I said, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, man. He was trying to bring all of them to justice, all the Christians to justice, to bring them in and have them tried and have them prosecuted for believing a false faith and believing in Jesus Christ. And then a meeting with Jesus changes everything. And Paul becomes a missionary and a preacher that goes from persecuting Christians to begin to propagate Christianity throughout the world. He says, no, God has not given up because he's still working in this Jew right here. He's still working. That, Jesus Christ has made a difference in my life and he's still working in me. God has not given up. He chased me down on Damascus Road and he called me to faith in him. And he's still calling to each one of us today. So Paul's saying is, you want to know how faithful God is with his plan of redemption and with the gospel? He's like, even when I first rejected Jesus, even when I rejected him again and again and again, even when I tried to see his followers eradicated from the planet, he still chased me down and sought me out and he pulled me into his family. So no, God's not done. God is still faithful. He's still doing his work of calling anyone who will come to him. So this is something that we need to remember when it comes to questions that we may have about God's faithfulness. See, your story, your testimony, God's work in your life, in our church, in what God is doing in our families, those are evidence and proof of God's faithfulness. So instead of looking for ways to be quieter about God's goodness, we need to be looking for ways to magnify his goodness. Because that proves God's faithfulness out there. When everybody else is asking, where's the proof that God is good? Find the proof that God is good in your life and share that with other people. Not in a way of, nana, nana, boo, boo, look what God did for me. No, 
But this is what God did for me humbly in saying God has been good. In the darkness, God is always that light in the middle of it. The second proof that Paul uses is that proof of election. He says, look at verse number two. He says, God has not rejected these people that he foreknew. Now we see that word foreknew and it goes all the way back to what we saw in the book of Romans chapter eight when he says, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God and he be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then in chapter nine, the other chapter which gives us theological fits, Paul gave this examples from, remember if you remember from Jacob and Isaac compared to Esau and Ishmael, how Jacob and Isaac were the children of the promise. They were not just physical Israel, meaning that they had Jewish blood running through their veins. They were also spiritual Israel because they followed what God had said. They came to God. Whereas Ishmael and Esau traded that in. They were physical Israel, but they were not spiritual Israel. And so God knows he foreknew what, is, what, what Isaac and Jacob would do and he knew what Esau and Ishmael would do as well, which tells us that salvation is a gift offered to us, but we must receive it. So there's that proof of election is that still today people are being saved, even from the Jewish heritage. We call them Messianic Jews. There are many people who respect their Jewish heritage, but still claim Jesus as the Messiah. They observe all of the Jewish feasts, understanding that Jesus is the, is the fulfillment of those things. God is still saving individual Jews. God is still saving Gentiles today, but it is on a personal and individual level. This is why we say Jesus is a personal Savior. That's why he can be the Savior of me and you, but maybe he might not be the Savior of somebody sitting in this room, or he might not be your Savior because you have not personally accepted him yet. And that's the urgency now is if you don't know Christ, trust him as Savior, your personal Lord and Savior, because you can't get to heaven on the coattails of your grandmother's religion. It must be a personal faith. But he uses that proof of election that he knows and he doesn't give up and he won't give out on us. And then he uses this third proof of the prophet Elijah back in the Old Testament. Look at verses two through four again of our, of our passage. He says, God hasn't rejected the people that he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and now I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? God says, I have 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. So to drive home the fact that God is not unfaithful and has not abandoned his own, he pulls this example from the Old Testament, from the prophet Elijah. Now the story of Elijah is fascinating. It takes place in, uh, in, in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. I won't take the time to read through that. I encourage you to look that up and read that because it is a fascinating story, okay? But let's sum it up a little bit. Let me give you the, the Cliff Notes version of this, okay? Elijah is a prophet, and he's called at a time when most of the people of Israel have turned their back on God because they've become oppressed by a, by a kind of a, a, a wicked leader who did what was right in their own eyes. And there was this queen named Jezebel, and Jezebel was like, she loved, I mean, she loved Baal. She was worshiping Baal, and she wanted to become the national religion of Israel. And so she was persecuting, and she was trying to wipe, uh, wipe the worship of God off the map. She wanted to get rid of all the prophets of God. and have, So she had her own prophets. They numbered in, they numbered in like almost a thousand prophets there. And so 
Elijah is like begging God, God, why are you letting this happen? Why does it seem like we're losing? If you're really powerful, if you're really good, if you're really supposed to be our chosen God, why do so many people turn their back on you? Why does it feel like I'm preaching to the wind when I preach, thus saith the Lord? And so, so Elijah basically puts God on, state, on trial and he says, God, we're going to have a showdown. All right, we're going to go up to Mount Carmel and we're going to have this showdown between all the prophets of Jezebel and all the prophets of Baal and, 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 and me and you. And you got to show your power. Well, God shows his power. Long story short, basically all the prophets that went up there, all the prophets of Baal went up to Mount Carmel. They were destroyed. God rained down fire from heaven. And to say that Jezebel was ticked is an understatement. She is mad. Elijah finds out and he's coming down. He's like, yep, I guess we won't be dealing with old Jezebel anymore. And Jezebel's like, oh, not so fast. I had a bad feeling this might happen. So I reserved 4,000 of my elite priests and they're waiting out in the woods and they're going to chase you down because while you were up there having your victory party, we made sure that all of the other prophets of Baal went in and killed all the other prophets of God. You're the only one left. So Elijah goes for the run and he goes from Mount Carmel to a cave in Mount Oreb and he's sitting there and he's telling God it's over. He's like, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you do this? Why did you show your power only to ultimately be defeated? And he says, there is no one left that loves you except for me. And what was God's response to him? Paul said. Paul said, God comes to him and says, Elijah, if you weren't such a lone wolf and if you weren't trying to do everything on your own, you would realize I have reserved 7,000 people in Israel who have not yet bowed their knee to Baal. And that's where we get this idea of a remnant. And all throughout scripture, all throughout history, we have seen that no matter how spiritually dark the world may seem, God always has pockets of remnants everywhere in the darkness. Underground churches, missionaries in darkened areas, places like that, where God is still showing his faithfulness through the fact that there are people that no matter how hard it may be, they are still faithful to him. You see, in the United States, our history is one of a populist Christianity. It's popular to do that. So there's a lot of people who say they're Christians, and today as we see it not being as popular, people are fearful. But I want to tell you this, church, and I want to encourage you with this. God is always going to have his remnant. Always. The question is, will you be part of the remnant? Because remnant life is a little bit different than populist life. Remnant life is life in Babylon instead of life in Jerusalem. It looks different. But it is still a life of faith to him. And it is still a life that is saturated in the power and in the presence of God. So God uses this when Elijah is sitting there thinking there is nothing left. God saying, oh, there's something left. I'm left, and I've also reserved 7,000 faithful folks. Get back and get to work. And just like Jesus has set, God has set aside a remnant of people in a godless situation who are still faithful to him, verse 5 says there are still at this present time a remnant that is chosen by grace. See, God's faithfulness is seen in the midst of the darkness. Even when it seems like God's not showing his power all the time with thunder and lightning, his faithfulness is seen in the whisper of the remnant. In the whisper of the remnant. And while we want to be part and we want to be the voice of the thunder and lightning, sometimes God's path for us is to be in the whisper of the remnant. And we need to be okay with that. I received some wise counsel this week from someone who reminded me that if all we ever do is look at the darkness and all we ever do is look at the defeating things that are around us 
All we're doing is giving way to the enemy who would rather have us be quiet. All we would do. And it would also blind us to the good that God is doing around us. And you can be sure that if you never give notice to the good things that God is doing around you, you'll never open yourself up to the good things that he wants to do through you. Ever. So that's the proof of his faithfulness. Paul, the elect, Elijah. Let's look at the persistence very quickly before we close out this morning. The persistence of his faithfulness. You say, okay, God is faithful. He's proven it, but I need to track it. See, if you're like me, I like to look at history and I like to see not only what people did and movements and ideas and everything, I want to see how God is moving through history as well, how he's shown himself faithful throughout all of it too. And here's one thing that we can count on is that God is faithful to the work of the gospel and the continual evidence of the remnant is proof of that. You can count on one thing about God. God is always faithful to the work of the gospel. It's his greatest work. He created us. That's a good work. And now he's restoring us and reclaiming us. That's his greatest work. That is what God is doing. God is restoring us and showing his glory. He showed his glory through creation. And when we mess that up through sin, he shows his glory through his restoration of us. So look at verse number seven. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. And the rest were hardened. This is talking about that remnant of Jewish people who have responded to the gospel. He says, there were some who did find it, and there are still those who are finding it today. There are, these are the ones that see Jesus as the Messiah, and they believe. And even though the larger number of the Jewish people fall under that hardened description of verses 8 through 10, ones who have the spirit of stupor, eyes that are blind, and ears that are deaf to the truth, throughout history there has always been a number of Jewish people who are strong in their faith in Jesus, and today as well. And that remnant that remnant right there, that remnant all the way back when Israel rejected, there was that remnant. We call them the apostles. We call them the early church. That was the remnant that sparked and took the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was part of that remnant that took the gospel to the Gentiles. And I want, to, I want you to think about this as I take you on a whirlwind tour through history real fast, real fast. New Testament history in like a minute. It, if you would have been around in the first century, who would have thought that within a couple hundred years, the Roman Empire, which was the pagan, brutal, sexually lascivious Roman Empire, would become the seat of, Christian, of Christianity in the world? Within just a couple of hundred years, within a couple of generations, they would go from absolutely hating and despising, actually killing Jesus, to becoming the, national, or the world's seat of Christianity. And if you had lived in the fourth century you would have never thought that the center of Christianity would then shift from Rome to the English-speaking world who were at that time just a bunch of barbarians and were savage tribesmen warring with each other over power. And then you could have never predicted that when European Christianity was going liberal and had tied themselves more to government than they had to the Lord of God, to the Lord God, and they would become secular, that a little upstart country later on would be called the United States. At the, and the time, Paul, at the time of Paul, the United States didn't even exist. And historically, the United States would become the country that would send out by proxy the most missionaries to take the gospel furthest in the world. And today, we're beginning to see a shift of the seat of the gospel and it's growing fast as in some areas of China and Latin America and Africa, countries that we thought just a generation before we would never be able to get the gospel to. Those are the areas that we are seeing the gospel most efficient today. Who could have predicted any of that? Because that's the influence of the faithful remnant, just being faithful there and God using that to spark his move of faithfulness throughout a world that needs him.
God is still working even when we don't see it. Sometimes when we don't see it, it's because we're looking in places that maybe he's been in the past and we're not looking to where he is now and where he's working. You see, just when we think things are over, you find out that God's been doing something that you didn't know about all along. So I hear a lot of spiritual doomsdayers out there saying that God's finished with America and this has to be the last days. And you know that every generation since Christ has thought they were living in the last days. Every generation since Christ. One, gener one of these days, one generation is going to be right. All right? One of these days. That's one thing we know, right? But you know what's going to happen if the last days don't come for another thousand years or more? You know what's going to happen? God's still going to be working on redeeming and restoring humanity. That's what's going to happen. He may be working in this piece and in this pocket and in this part over here, but he will constantly and always be working. And you know what else too? There's always going to be a remnant of people that God is using to do that work. And what lays on humanity is, will I be part of that remnant? Will I be part of that remnant? See, we may, need, we may see nations without God, but there are always going to be remnants. We'll never see a world without him until the tribulation or whatever view of revelation you may have. But see, God is also so faithful to his people Israel and the fact that God is, the gospel is going out to Gentiles is proof of his persistence as well. But this is where we got to kind of like get our thinking caps on before we close out this morning. You look at this and you, you look at, especially you look at verses 8 through 10 of our text and you're like, okay, God gives them a spirit of stupor. God closes their eyes. God closes their ears. Doesn't that seem a little bit, a little bit like cruel of God to do? No. God took his hand of blessing off. And there weren't, there weren't prophets being raised up anymore. And the preachers began to go out to the Gentiles because they were receptive. See, God doesn't have to curse us. God just has to lift his hand of blessing. And that's what God did there. But you see, God moved the gospel out to the Gentiles, to a people who weren't steeped in legalism and tradition, and they heard about Jesus, and they knew that the gift of salvation was something they need to respond to. And here's the thing. God hasn't given up on them, on the ones that rejected him, even though they have given up on him. And God uses that national rejection by Israel to move into redeeming others. See, there's a time when God's going to draw them back. We'll talk about that a little bit later in, as we move through chapter 11, when he's going to draw the Jews back. But right now, he's using the gospel going to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Look at verse number 11. He says, I asked then, have they stumbled so as to fall? And that word fall meaning fall away, like fall away. So think of a runner, okay? A runner that's running in a race. A runner may trip and fall, but what will that runner do? If he's feeling okay, he'll get back up and he'll start running again, or she will. That's what he's talking, that's what he's talking about here, if a runner has tripped and fall. So on the grand scheme of things, spiritually speaking, Israel has tripped and has fallen. They will get back up again and they will run. They have not fallen and broken themselves to where they cannot do it again. They have not been left behind completely. He says this, absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles for what purpose? What is one of the purposes? Not only to save the Gentiles, but what is one of the other purposes? To make Israel jealous. All right? Anybody ever, anybody ever have somebody break up with them and you, you know, you, you try to go out with somebody else and, you know, you show up at the same place you know they're at and they, you're like, hey, look how good you used to have it, right? Now, now I'm moved, moved on. Not that God's doing that. He's not like a middle, he's not like in a middle school relationship with us, but the salvation of the Gentiles the purpose is also to make there are Jews who see the salvation of the Gentiles and see their need for Jesus as well. 
God uses salvation. God uses his goodness and his blessing to cause jealousy on there. Now look at verse number 12. Now if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? He's looking forward to the day when all of Israel, when the nation of Israel comes to Jesus, right? And he's like, man, it's going to be amazing when that happens. He's now I'm speaking to you Gentiles and so far as much as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. He's like, so I continue to minister and I'll continue to minister to the Gentiles and I'll continue to minister to Jew alike because they need Jesus. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean? So we want to slow down and catch what this is saying. In, in verse number 12, the transgression of the Jewish people in rejecting Christ has made it possible for Gentiles, us, to reap the goodness of God and the gospel and salvation. So God is faithful in his work of redemption, even when his people that he wants to redeem say, I don't want redemption. He's still faithful to bring that redemption to others. And through that redemption of others, call the ones who rejected him back to it. This is God's faithfulness. God is so faithful that he doesn't give up. Will hardening come? Yes. Is there, a, is there a warning in the constant rejection? Yes. The more we reject, the easier it becomes to stay in that rejection. The more we take our eyes off of God and what he is doing, the less jealous we'll ever be. So the gospel being preached continues to urge that jealousy on, that need for the gospel. See, when people are turning from the gospel, the need is not for us to be more quiet with the gospel. It is to be more effective with it. The answer is to preach it more, not hatefully, but to be, preach the true gospel. So do you see God's faithfulness here? It doesn't matter what season it is, light, dark, spring, summer, winter, whatever it is, God is faithfully working towards the redemption and salvation of mankind. And, and this is awesome. I, this this kind of came to me this week. In the Old Testament, God used Israel as his blessing and, and blessing him to cause the pagan nations to see his power. Ask Pharaoh if he thinks God's powerful, right? Ask Babylon, ask Nebuchadnezzar if, he, if they found out that God was powerful, and they did. So he used the Old Testament, and he used the Jews in the Old Testament to show his power to other nations. Now in the New Testament, he's using his salvation of pagan people to call his people back to him. He's always doing the same thing. He's using his blessing and his redemption and his protection of his people to call those who reject him to him because he's always in the business of calling people to him. So I want to give you some questions this morning as we close out. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Right? See, God is faithful and he will never stop calling us to him. That's one thing that we can take from this passage this morning. There's so many people today asking, can I trust God? Is he faithful? And the answer I think and I hope that we see from this passage is yes, he is. And the question is, can you trust him? Not can he be trusted, is can you trust him? Will you trust him? Have you trusted him as your savior? And if you have not done that, I encourage you to do that today. Today's the day. Or are you still living in this state of rejection? Don't keep rejecting because your heart gets colder and harder every time you do that. And then I also want to ask you this. How do we apply God's faithfulness to what we see in this world? To what we see going on. What we saw happen in Texas and what we hear going on all the time. Those children didn't deserve to die on that day and the way that they did. Where is God for those families? God will be seen in the ministry of the remnant.
That's why we prayed for churches in Texas and we prayed, God, open our hearts and open our lives and open our hands to help in any way that we possibly can. Church, I believe this with my whole heart. We will never win people while we're trying to protect ourselves. We'll never win people trying to protect all the things that we think are important because we hold to Jesus and we give them Jesus. It's what they need. The faithful servants of God who minister and love and sit with and grieve with the hurting, that's the remnant that shows the light that God is faithful. And the question, church, that we ask today is what about us? We're a remnant in a world that doesn't know Christ. Will we be faithful to him and will we continue his work of redemption by faithfully serving? So is God faithful? Yes. He has chosen to use us as a remnant. Will we be part of that and do that work? As we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, I ask you this morning, do you know Christ? If you're not saved, come to him today. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what, I know Christ, but I've just been kind of going through the motions. I hadn't really thought about how important it is to be part of that remnant. No matter how things, to be honest with you, Pastor, I've just gotten mad because I just don't, like the world just doesn't seem to be operating the way that I think it should. And it just seems like nobody cares anymore. Nobody, nobody wants to hear about it anymore. I trust, trust me. As God told Elijah, there are folks who want to hear. There are folks who need to hear. And we need to go. Will we? Will we? Heavenly Father, I have your will and way in this time of response and invitation. Work in us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand today, if you need to come today for any reason, pray. If you need to come, be safe. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.